pray that my words might make sense because they are inspired by your Holy Spirit. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please be seated? Well, last week we began our journey through Lent. And as we did, we also started to begin to journey a little bit more closely through the Gospel of Luke. Now, this is a book of the Bible that the author himself describes as an orderly account. Now, while it might be orderly, it is by no means ordinary. Last week, we had an extraordinary story with the tempting of Jesus by the devil after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. And this week, we also have an equally extraordinary story of Jesus being transfigured on a mountaintop. I did suggest last week that you may find the temptation story both mysterious and intriguing, but I think today's story steps it up a whole nother level. If you are a Bible nerd like me, you might be interested in the speculation that scholars engage in around this scene and its place in each of the three Gospels that it appears in. But that's probably better for a conversation where I'm buying you the beverage of your choice rather than a Sunday sermon. Last week, I did also give you what I thought was a way of reading or approaching the Bible that doesn't always make it about us as the first thing. Stuart's guide to reading the Bible and not making it all about you. Number one, put aside your natural tendency and my natural tendency to ask what is in this passage for me. Secondly, look for what God is doing. And after we've discovered what the passage might be saying about who Jesus is, the nature of God and God's intervention in our world, then we're more easily able to discern the hope that the passage contains. In other words, seek first the activity of God in Scripture and find hope because of that activity. We will usually find hope for you and me, but we'll also find hope for others. Last week's passage said a lot about who Jesus is and his mission, and so does today's. Last week, we learned that the temptation story revealed that Jesus was not about bringing quick fixes, easy answers, or solutions that would please the masses. Rather, Jesus' ministry involved getting amongst the mess, the brokenness, the dysfunction, and the disaster of the world to which he was born into. Getting amongst the mess of our lives and our world is a much bigger job than three quick snaps of the fingers. Much bigger than three wishes coming true. It's a lifelong relationship of intimacy and trust. Jesus just doesn't want our attention for the moment, 
for the now. Jesus wants our whole life. Jesus is not a build-to-order, solve-all-of-my-immediate-problems-and-issues right-now type of saviour. Jesus is not a superhero. Although, I have to admit, there is a little bit of superhero imagery in this passage that is a little hard to avoid. Especially um, after last Sunday, I took my son Caleb to the movies to see Captain Marvel. Has anybody else seen that yet? Yeah, awesome. I promise there's no spoilers. That's okay. But I do love a good superhero movie. And in my humble opinion, Marvel are doing much better than DC at the moment in their superhero movies. And Captain Marvel is no exception. Uh, I couldn't help but read today's gospel passage after seeing Captain Marvel and see some similarities in the imagery of Captain Marvel and Jesus. See it? Captain Marvel, glowing. Jesus, glowing. Maybe it's just me. While Jesus being a superhero does make for a catchy kid's song from our friends at Hillsong, it does make for very dodgy theology. So let's try and understand what this glow-in-the-dark Jesus is all about. Jesus' transfiguration story comes at the climax of the section in Luke's Gospel where he is revealing Jesus' identity. I've already had one superhero, nerdy sci-fi reference. Here's number two. Do you remember the end scene from Return of the Jedi? Where um, we see an image of, of, of people who shouldn't really be there because they've passed away. I mean, it's a bit of Return of the Jedi in this scene with Moses and Elijah standing alongside Jesus there's awe, there's mystery. It draws you in, but it doesn't give us all of the answers. God has a habit throughout Scripture of revealing who God is and God's nature on mountains. God encountered Moses on a mountain, gave him his holy name, Yahweh, I am, gave him the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. God spoke to Elijah on Mount Horeb. And Jesus gave humanity the most complete teaching about the kingdom of God on another mountain with the Sermon on the Mount. And here, on another mountain again, Peter, James and John receive confirmation of who Jesus is, his identity. 
Jesus is our most complete revelation of who God is. We live in a world today where if you believe the statisticians and the demographers, and I do, will tell us that less and less people are believing in the God that we believe in. I do also believe that the statistics are revealing that the interest and a growth in a spiritual yearning is actually on the increase. I've often wondered, and, and actually in some of my conversations with my non-Christian friends, I've found this to be true, that if we have the time to understand the God that they no longer believe in or never believed in in the first place, I have always found that the God that they don't believe in looks nothing like Jesus. For us as followers of Jesus, that's a bit of a worry. And I do think that we need to do a much better job of demonstrating that it is Jesus that we believe in. It is Jesus who we want to model our lives upon. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face glowed because he had been in the presence of God. In the scene as Luke describes it, every part of Jesus is described as dazzling white. Every part of Jesus is a reflection of who God is. Jesus is the presence of God in our world. Moses also reminds us of the Exodus event and the liberation of the people of Israel and their responsibility to uphold the covenant, the law. Elijah is the prophet who will one day turn the people back to the covenant. And in Jewish thought, Elijah is always associated with the end times. If you are privileged enough to share a Passover meal with a Jewish family, you will know that they will normally leave a spare seat at their table because they believe in anticipation that one day Elijah will return. In this scene, we have Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Luke is the only gospel that gives us an understanding of what they're talking about. They're talking about his departure, which is about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. If you've heard a few of my sermons, you'll know that I like to go back to the original Greek to find out what words mean. And when you do that, you find out that the word departure is not the best word that we could use. The word in Greek is the same as the word that is used in the Old Testament, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the word that is used is exodus. And Eugene Peterson, who translated the message version of the Bible, puts this verse in a brilliant way. They talked over his exodus. 
the one Jesus was about to complete in Jerusalem. Now, when we hear the word exodus, often what comes to our minds is plagues and parting of the Red Sea. And, and if you're old enough like me to remember that movie with Charlton Heston in it. But exodus is so much more. Exodus is the single most identifying event in Israel's history until Jesus. Exodus is their most complete understanding of freedom and of liberation until Jesus. Exodus is where the person and the nature and the name of God is most fully revealed until Jesus. By using the word exodus, Luke signals that this is where we will find our identity and our liberation from now on in Jesus. The transfiguration tells us who Jesus is, the chosen Son of God, and his disciples are instructed to listen to him. I can't help but wondering, looking at the way that the world looks at the church, particularly over the last few weeks, and ask myself if we as his followers did more of the listening to him stuff, whether the way the world viewed the church might be somewhat different to what it is today. When... The three disciples fully and finally woke up. They were amazed at the sight that they saw. Peter, scrambling to his feet, offered to build dwellings or booths in, in the tradition of the Jewish Feast of the Tabernacles for each one of them. I love this part in the story. It's sort of like one of those comical moments in a superhero movie. All that's missing is the big cosmic hand of God coming up behind Peter and giving him a big slap on the face, saying, you've missed the point, Peter. When the clouds lift, Moses and Elijah are gone, and Jesus stands alone. And Luke, in a clear but understated way, says that Jesus is the one who has come to fulfill the law and the prophets. I too love Peter's response uh, to build the three dwellings. And often it's interpreted, and I've preached sermons like this before, where what Peter is really wanting is for the moment to last longer, to stay with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, to live on that mountaintop forever. But my sermon, I think, was a little inaccurate when I, I did use that imagery. What's more than likely going on here was Peter's desire to mark the place and preserve the moment where Peter had encountered God. And if you look throughout the Old Testament, this happens regularly in Israel's history. When people meet God, they name the place. They build something. 
And Peter just wants to do that here. Honouring and protecting the moment in the form of three dwellings. I think Christians continue to be tempted by this type of response to our spiritual mountaintops. We hang on our glory days and we view them with rose-coloured glasses. We idolise men and women who are really just as frail and broken and make as many mistakes as we do. But because they've been a catalyst to our own spiritual awakening, they take on almost a godlike persona. And our buildings become shrines to those holy moments where we've experienced a profound realisation. We want to preserve it just the way that it was or just the way that it was in great Auntie Edna's time when she donated that piece of furniture. Is it any wonder that Anglicans are the butt of how many Anglicans does it change to take to change a light bulb? Jerks. If you don't know the answer, the answer is none. Change? Anglicans don't believe in change. The transfiguration, Peter's response, and the words of rebuke from God remind us that while those holy moments are critical, they define our identity. They help us to understand God more deeply. They change us. But they always point us to go back down the mountain, back into the mess, back into the brokenness, back into the disaster of the world to which we are born into. And that's what happens in the second half of the passage that Roger read for us this morning. They find a father and a child gasping for life. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And in that moment, that father and that son experience transfiguration. If we are able to unlock the doors of our private shelter and step out into the community, we will meet the distress of that community head on. We will meet people who today are asking hard questions about why that shooting happened in Christchurch. We will meet people who haven't given belief in God a second thought for years, ever. We will meet people who have no idea why we would waste an opportunity to sleep in on a Sunday morning or to go out for brunch or to just spend time by ourselves. And, and that's confronting. 
it's daunting and it's scary. It's going to impact on our lives, our time, our space and our comfort zones. We won't be able to offer them easy answers or quick fixes. I've been hearing lots of responses and I've been trying to think of them myself uh, to the recent events in New Zealand and not one person has come up with a quick fix or an easy answer. But we will discover transformation if we go to them. If we connect with them, if we give our time to them. The story of the transfiguration of Jesus loses its power and its purpose if Jesus and the disciples don't go down the mountain. The transfigured Jesus does change. But it's not Jesus in Jesus' self that changes. It's the way that he's viewed by the disciples and the way that they view his actions. Seeing Jesus differently means that we see ourselves and others differently. If we just live in that high, rarefied air, there isn't any point to transfiguration. It was never meant as a private experience of spirituality removed from the public square. It was a vision to carry us down into those dark places, in those ordinary, everyday events, in our own personal joys and triumphs, to glimpse an unimagined possibility that can be brought to life on the ground. After every spiritual high point, there is the hard reality of the challenge of ministry. And that challenge isn't just for those who are employed or set apart by their churches and faith communities. That is a challenge for every disciple of Jesus, for you and for me. Not because of our length of time in a church, not because of our status or our position or our gender or our age. It's for every one of us. The glory of God's presence and the pain of a broken world can't be separated. We can hold ourselves up in this very comfortable dwelling that we call a church. We can shut ourselves off by only associating with our type of people. But there is no transfiguration in that. Or we can open ourselves up to our world. The world in which we live in. With the mess, the confusion, the hard stuff. And rather than expecting them to come to us, we can meet people where they are. We can sit alongside them and cry out to Jesus because we don't know 
what to do. And we don't have the answers. In the same way that the disciples, they tried to help this father and the son, but they didn't know what to do. They had to wait for Jesus. But in the meantime, we can introduce them to the presence of Jesus that shines through our lives. We don't need to use fancy words for it. We just have to be. And what they see won't always be dazzling white. More often it will be grace-scarred. But those grace-scarred experiences demonstrate the intimacy, the relationship and the transformation and the transfiguration that we have experienced. And it's not about telling our greatest spiritual hits, the moments that we've had the mountaintops. But it is always looking at the people in front of us and looking forward to the ways that we can serve them and our community. The choice that we face this morning is not a choice between spirituality versus social action. It's not a choice between a retreat and engagement. It's not a choice between holiness and real-life ministry. The transfiguration story is not an excuse for us to escape. Luke carefully holds together this mountaintop experience with the challenges of daily service and ministry. We see who Jesus really is. We see a hope that is found in his identity, reflecting through us in our identity and our vocation. Hope that is bound together with the struggle for peace and justice in the world in which we live in. My prayer is that as we wrestle together as a church, as we bravely go as we've called to go, as we get uncomfortable, we might know that the radiant love of Jesus is with us. That we might know there are stories waiting for us to hear and be involved with, to journey with. There are stories that can become our own because Jesus is with us. Lord, help us to seek first and find your hope. As we stand together, will you sing with me? Seek first your kingdom, seek first.